You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvette Press. This is episode 77. Hello, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamorph City Story Universe. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you up to date on my life and my writing. So, let's kick things off with this week's story. This week I'm bringing you the first part of Chapter 23 in my Metamorph City novel, Things Unseen. If you're new to this show, don't start here, because the book is almost over. Go back to episode 24 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will, of course, contain spoilers. In order to save the lives of the Rift symbionts and their hosts, our heroes have converged in the depths of Caius Citadel. Cephi, Misty, and Julia are now at the Nexus, the source of Caius' power, where they are soaking up the life-aspected mana they need in order to survive. The plan was to let them refill their energy reserves, then let the Lothanasi take them back to the Rift in secret, where the symbionts could return to their home. Unfortunately, Malcolm Ardvalos has decided that Cephi poses too great a risk to his operations to be allowed to live. With her power to see the future, Cephi could expose Malcolm's illegal business activities to the Majestrix. That could mean the end of the Syndicate in Metamore, and everything Malcolm has struggled to build here. His spymaster, William Westerson, has dispatched a covert ops team to find Cephi and kill her and anyone else who stands between them and their target. To make matters worse, this team is equipped with a stealth system called Greyout, which shields their movements from the usually all-seeing Majestrix. In the catacombs under the Citadel, Kate, David, and Kelsey set up a defensive perimeter, guarding the path that leads to the Nexus. The rear entrance will be guarded by Morgan, Misty, and Omega, an ancient automaton brought to life by forgotten magics and infused with a human soul. But there is one more complication. The arrival of Ezekiel Kapler, who acted on a tip from Westerson, then followed Morgan and Misty by scent down to the Nexus. Once there, he was subdued by Omega, and Morgan and Misty questioned him. It soon became clear that Westerson has been manipulating Ezekiel this entire time, the vampire spymaster helped Ezekiel to set up the illegal trip to the rift that started this mess. Morgan speculates that Westerson wanted to create a big, embarrassing incident for House Kapler, which would strengthen Malcolm's public crusade to have the rift taken away from Kapler and opened up to commercial development. Zeke has been so worried about a conspiracy to steal his birthright, but it turns out he's been in the conspiracy all along. Quietly furious at the way he was used, Zeke is persuaded when Misty tells him they need to buy time for the Lightbringer's reinforcements to arrive. Zeke asks Omega to let him go, but what he plans to do in order to help remains to be seen. Things Unseen a novel of Metamore City. Written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 
23. Kate sat among the ancient dead and waited for the killing to start. She didn't envy the syndicate's options. The catacombs under the citadel offered few opportunities for cover. The hallways were long, open passages of brick and stone, and the motion-sensing lights would reveal their coming from at least a hundred meters out. The nearly identical, repeating blocks would be a nightmare to move through, if they did the smart thing and checked all the side passages for a possible ambush. Even if they had a tracking spell that showed the exact path Sephi had followed, they would be fools to charge straight in to whatever Kate and her allies had waiting for them. They'd look for a way to circle around, try to come at them from behind, or from several directions at once. Kate was counting on that. She looked down at the grid of small pebbles she had laid out on the floor of the burial chamber, one of the rooms where the bricks had crumbled away and provided a rare hiding place among the endless corridors. The pebbles sat in a grid of three by four, representing the intersections closest to the staircase that Morgan had charged her to defend. Right now, three of the pebbles glowed with a pale green light, the intersections immediately north, east, and west of the one that led to the stairs, currently defended by David, Kelsey, and Kate, respectively. The rest of the pebbles were dark. The three green lights gave her just enough illumination to avoid stepping on any fallen bones. Tripwire enchantment looks good here, Kate said into the radio earpiece the Lightbringers had given her. Good work, David. The signal wouldn't travel very far in the catacombs, but the hundred-meter range ought to be enough, unless things went very wrong indeed. Looks good here as well, Kelsey said. Going to radio silence, Kate said. David and Kelsey both clicked their radios once in acknowledgement. By previous arrangement, whoever made visual contact with the enemy would click twice, but otherwise they would keep silence until they were spotted. Kate sat down in her haunches, peered out of the hole in the wall, and waited. The ancient skeletons made for strange company. Kate could just see them in the faint green light, stuffed into the shelves of the burial chamber like the books in Ms. Fallon's libraries. She paid them little attention, though, another body looming more prominently in her thoughts. She got angry again every time she thought about it, and then she got angry at herself for being so distracted by it. So she'd killed a killer. So what? That was part of the job. Admittedly, not one she'd had to do before, but she'd known it could happen sooner or later. It wasn't like the bitch hadn't had it coming. Kate had done her duty. She'd done what she was trained to do. Sure, there'd be a pile of paperwork and mandatory leave and a hearing and a psych evaluation and gods only knew what other administrative bullshit when this was all over, but they'd clear her. Not even the biggest tight-ass in internal affairs would raise an eyebrow over this one. So why did her subconscious keep playing it back? over and over again, like a tongue flicking over a missing tooth. Let it go. She was a stupid blood junkie and she died for it. You've got better people to feel sorry for. The shooting flashed through her memory again anyway. Kate considered the possible merits of blunt force brain trauma. 
Then again, she'd had enough of that on this case already. The light in the burial chamber grew a little brighter. Kate looked over at the grid and saw two more of the pebbles illuminated, one at the northeast corner of the grid, the other at the northwest. Both pebbles glowed green, which meant a living being somewhere within twenty meters of the rune David had drawn at the corresponding intersection. There you are. After about a minute, another stone lit up, due south of the northeast corner. That placed the hostels one block east of David and a block north of Kelsey. The northeastern corner stayed lit, so either they were lingering in between the two hallways, or they had left someone in back as a rear guard. Any minute now. Kate's radio clicked twice. Someone had made visual contact. David or Kelsey? She waited. More movement. Another light on the west end of the grid. The northwest light went out a moment later, getting closer to Kate. She waited. Blam, blam, blam. Distant gunshots coming from the east. The radio crackled. Hostile down, Kelsey said. One down, one retreating north. Copy that, David said. Two more gunshots, closer into the north. The light east of David's position went out. No hit. Hostile retreating north. The light on the middle west moved a space east. Now it was due north of Kate. She peered out of her hidey hole, saw a light in the distance. David, watch your six, Kate warned. Returning to cover, he said. Your ball. Kate covered the pebble grid with a handkerchief, called up her veil again, and slipped out into the hallway. The motion sensors ignored her. She headed north, saw light from the west at the next intersection. She put her back to the west wall, east forward, one careful step at a time, froze a meter back from the corner, waited. A man in tactical gear leaned around the corner, looked, pulled back. No sign he'd spotted Kate. She clicked her radio transmitter twice, alerting David and Kelsey. The perp crossed the intersection, still moving toward David's position. Personal defense weapon in his hands, short-nosed, nasty, could punch through some body armor. Not that Kate had any. Kate checked the corner. Another perp, same gear, ten meters behind his buddy. She waited. The second perp approached. Now. Pistol whip to the base of the neck, just under the helmet. Crack. He starts falling, leg around, instep to the back of the knee. Crack. Grab Perp 2's vest and hold him up, reach under his arm to aim at Perp 1. But a pow Thuck, thuck, thuck. Burst fire from Perp 1 slams into his buddy's chest. Perp 2 gurgles. Lean out, aim. Blam, blam, blam. Hits to the knees, thigh. Blood paints the floor behind him. He falls. Blam. Another round bounced off his helmet, and he goes limp. Fails down. Can't hold that much focus in hand-to-hand. Vulnerable. Holster the pistol, grab Perp 2's weapon. Check his pulse. Dead. Perp 1 is wheezing and blowing bubbles of blood. Could be trouble later. Switch the PDW to single fire, aim at Perp 1's hands. Blam. Blam. Won't be shooting anyone now. Two hostiles down. Retreating. Back south, back into position. Lights coming from up ahead, 
Shit. Look right, look left. Open burial chamber, there. Men with guns up ahead, taking aim. But a pow. Kate dove into the chamber and landed in a pile of bones. Check arms, check legs. No hits. She stuck the gun out of the opening, sent a burst downrange without aiming. Two more bursts came back, kicking out chips of brick from the walls around her. I'm pinned down, she yelled into the radio. Two hostiles, Sector 2. I copy, Kelsey said. Kate fired another burst, but the perps were behind the corners now. Masonry flew. She paused, took aim, waited for one of them to pop out. A metal canister bounced around the corner, rolled down the hallway. Kate scrambled backward. Oh, fuck! Her senses exploded in light and thunder. The world shook, turned on its side, fell over. Her ears howled, a ringing that drowned out all thought. After the light came darkness, and then the swirling, blinding colors of afterimage. Part of her, dimly aware of what had happened, waited for the perps to come, for the burst of rounds that would end her life. They didn't come. As Vision returned, she saw shadows dancing in the light outside the chamber. She still heard nothing but the ringing of her ears. Slowly, she got to hands and knees, picked up the PDW, shuffled forward, carefully peeked out. A nightmare in oil-black skin grappled with both perps at once. Tentacles wrapped around their torsos, lifted them off the ground, smashed them against the walls and each other. One went limp. The nightmare dropped him, lifted the other still-thrashing man in front of it. Its mouth opened wide, wider, a forest of white, cone-shaped teeth. The man opened his own mouth in a scream Kate could not hear. The nightmare ate his face. Kate turned away, bent over, and retched on the pile of bones. Sometime later, she felt arms around her, helping her up. She looked up and saw Kelsey holding her, the nightmare standing guard with a PDW pointed down the hall. Kelsey mouthed the words, Hold still, then placed her hands over Kate's ears. They tingled and grew warm for a moment and then the ringing was replaced by the roar of blood rushing through them. After a couple of seconds, that faded as well. Even her dizziness was gone. Better? Kelsey asked. Much, Kate said. She looked up at Ezekiel Kapler. What are you doing here? Helping. Zeke absently wiped the blood from his mouth. I apologize for the bomb, detective. It was an honest misunderstanding, now corrected. An honest... Kate cut herself off, shook her head. Never mind, I don't have time for this. She looked at Kelsey. Status? David answered over the radio. Human hostels are all down or out, but the north edge of the grid just lit up red. Kate grimaced. Red meant death mana. Vampires. Pull back to the stairs, people. They ran together as quickly as they could manage. Zeke took up the rear, covering their retreat, but no enemies showed themselves yet. Any word from Morgan? Kate asked. Jewels and Safi aren't awake yet, Zeke said. We need to buy them more time. Kate looked at Kelsey. How many grenades did you bring? 
After Hunter's Hollow, I'm fresh out, Kelsey said. Brought something special for vampires, though. She grabbed a silver-colored mag from her belt pouch, swapped it for the matte black one in the pistol, worked the slide to replace the last round. Hope it's enough, Kate said. David had beaten them back to the stairs. His sickle was in his hand, and Kate could feel him weaving a spell of some kind. Zeke's gun roared behind them. Here they come, he shouted. Kate didn't risk a glance over her own shoulder. She ran past David and leapt down the stairs, Kelsey and Zeke right behind her. A wash of life magic sprang up at their backs, so potent that Kate felt it as a surge of strength running through her body. She turned and looked back to see a wave of bright green energy rushing down the passage, filling it from floor halfway to ceiling. At least a dozen vamps scattered out of the path of the spell. About half of them escaped by diving into broken burial chambers or side corridors. The rest vanished into clouds of dust as the wave crashed over them. But behind them, the second wave of vampires was still coming. Give them hell, Kate shouted and opened fire. Bullets tore through the ranks of the undead, shattering limbs, blasting through blackened viscera, even blowing open the occasional skull. The onslaught slowed their advance, but showed no signs of breaking their morale. Kate saw faces distorted into bestial, half-human shapes, eyes maddened with bloodlust. These were not the urbane, sophisticated monsters of Malcolm's syndicate. These were the rabble, the cannon fodder, vamps too feral for polite society, rounded up and unleashed upon his enemies like a pack of rabid dogs. Kate's team would be doing everyone a favor if they put them down. As the vamps came within thirty meters, Kelsey began to fire. Careful, deliberate shots from her pistol. The bullets flared with white light wherever they struck, and the vamps that she hit fell to the ground, screaming, tripping up the monsters behind them. Lightbringers, get all the cool toys, Kate muttered between bursts of fire from the PDW. But a pow. Ba-da-pow! Ba-pow! Click. The gun ran empty. Shit! Kate tossed it aside and drew her pistol. The lead rank of vamps were within spitting distance. Down! David shouted, and unleashed another blast of green energy. This one caught the pack deep inside the tunnel with no room for escape. Most of the vamps were vaporized in an instant. Most, but not all. Four of the vamps at the back of the mob jumped on the shoulders of their fellows and leapt over the crest of the wave before it struck. Kate caught one of them in the neck with a lucky shot, severing the spine and dropping it dead. The other three pounced into melee with Kelsey, David, and Ezekiel. Kelsey. Kate made her choice without even having to think about it. David and Zeke could handle themselves, but Kelsey was only human. The vamp ran into Kelsey at full speed, and they tumbled down the stairs together. Kelsey rolled with the fall, trying to convert the momentum into a throw, but the vamp's grip was just too strong. They fetched up against the wall of the chamber below and rattled one of the glowing orbs on its stone pillar. The vamp was on top again, and he went for Kelsey's throat. Kate fired five shots into his back at point-blank range. The vamp convulsed and threw Kate off of him sending her skittering across the floor. 
Out of the corner of her eye, she saw Ezekiel wrestling with his opponent, crushing the vampire in his massive tentacles. David danced a deadly duet with his undead partner, seeking an opening to use the life magic that would destroy it. Kelsey used the vamp's distraction against him, rolling back on her shoulders and launching him through the archway at the far end of the room. The vampire tumbled down the rocky slope, gaining momentum as he fell, and landed with a splash in the river below. Kate knew that running water was bad for vampires, but she'd never seen anything like this. The water boiled and shimmered with light as a black cloud rose into the air above the screaming vamp. Within five seconds, nothing remained but an oily black stain and the smoke over the water. Wow, Kelsey whispered. That is... wow. Kate grinned fiercely and looked over her shoulder. Okay, guys, everybody into the pool. Zeke was the first to follow suit. Wrapping his vampire tightly in both tentacles, he ran down the hill and jumped into the water. The vampire thrashed and made bubbles as he held it under, and then was suddenly gone. David, being less brawny but more agile, led his assailant in a fighting withdrawal toward the rocky slope. He feigned an opening in his defenses until the vampire struck, then grabbed, dropped, buried a knife in the vamp's chest, and flung him over his shoulder into the water. David caught himself at the edge and rolled back to his feet with nary a scratch. Hey, that was fun, Zeke said, climbing out of the river and shaking himself off. I could get to like this heroing thing. Zeke, Kate said, tiredly, you were surprisingly helpful there, and I want you to know that I'm very grateful. But please, please stop talking. Ha, Zeke said, thoughtfully. That's what my mother always said. Hello there, darlings, Morgan's voice echoed up from the cavern walls. The vampire showed herself a moment later, grinning broadly. All the miscreants accounted for, then? Kate glanced aside at Zeke, then back at Morgan. Define miscreant. Morgan beamed. All of you, come back to the Nexus, she said. We have a most remarkable visitor. And that's where we're going to stop for this week, folks. Some of you can probably guess who the remarkable visitor is, but what will she have to say to our heroes? And now that there have been two serious firefights in the heart of the Citadel, how the heck are the Lightbringers going to get Misty and her friends back to the Rift unnoticed? Find out next week. NaNoWriMo is upon us once again, folks, and you know what that means. It's time to start upping those daily word counts. So let's see how I'm doing. Here's your weekly writing report. I spent this week trying to get back into my groove on The Lost in the Least. After taking most of October off from writing, I found that I had to go back and reread the last several chapters, just to reorient myself on the different storylines. 
As a result, I didn't get very much new writing done this week. I did 727 words on the novel, and successfully filled in the remaining gaps in what I had already written. I'm now caught up to the middle of chapter 35, and the manuscript stands at about 118,000 words. My goal now is to push forward through November and December, and finish the first draft before New Year's. Looking back at the previous week, my partner Melanie was out of town for the last week of October. You might think that would lead to me getting more writing done. In practice, though, when you're the only person taking care of the animals, preparing meals, and cleaning the house, you don't get done nearly as much writing as you think you will. I've also had some late nights at work lately, which hasn't helped matters. By the time I got to Wednesday, I was ready to give up on October as a bad go. Overall, I wrote just 4,976 words in October. That makes it my second worst month to date, after March of 2016. I wrote on nine days, averaging 553 words per day. To be perfectly honest, though, more than half of those days were spent on writing the scripts for the weekly podcast episodes, not on writing new fiction. On the plus side, though, I did accomplish my big business target for October, which was finishing the paperback version of Divine Intervention. The book is now on sale at Amazon, and I've got to tell you folks, I'm super happy about how it came out. Wait till you guys read my story Divide by Zero in this format. I got to do some really fun things with text in this story, and it's never looked better. And you know what else has never looked better? The covers. I've updated the covers for all four Metamore City paperbacks. They now have the Metamore City logo on the spine, and they've been numbered in my suggested reading order. I've also adjusted the cover art on Things Unseen, and added back cover copy to Making the Cut. Overall, I spent more than 30 hours in October working on the business side of Liminal Corvid Press, and now we've got four lovely editions ready for purchase. Just in time for the Christmas shopping season. And now, the feedback. Rosemary wrote in about the end of episode 75. She says, The light dawns at last. Glad to know that enough of Zeke is left in there to finally listen to reason. Perhaps he can now use his powers for good. Or at least quit obstructing our heroes. Also, poor Morgan, getting the brunt of Kate's current anger and indiscriminate vampire-hating. Unquote. Hi, Rosemary. Yes, Morgan is taking some unfair treatment from Kate right now, but isn't that always the way it is when we're angry? The people we love are always the ones who receive the worst of it, because they're the ones who are close enough to be there when we lash out. Fortunately, Morgan's a good enough friend to forgive Kate and let it go. As for Zeke, well, now you've had a chance to see what he did with those powers. I'll leave it to others to decide whether that was for good or not. Hey, Chris, it's Sarah Testarossa. I only have time for my most important comment from our latest episode. Holy shit, Zeke. I chortled so loud when um, he said, I think I fucked up. That was, that was beautiful. I'm really glad that he is finally realizing that and that he was part of the conspiracy to take his own fucking birthright, as he calls it. But that just that line and the delivery that was that just that just was great. 
I definitely have lots more thoughts on all the other stuff because I haven't commented in a while, but that's all I have time for today. So thank you for giving me a uh, good chortle this morning. Take care. Thanks, Sarah. I'm glad you got a good laugh out of Zeke's revelation. I think that moment affects everyone differently, but the important thing to me is that it has an effect. That means people are connecting to the characters, and in the end, that's what it's all about. I want to take a few minutes to talk to you guys about the Patreon campaign. Consider this the fall pledge drive moment for The Raven and the Writing Desk. Based on download statistics, there are about 1,500 people regularly listening to this podcast. Of those 1,500 people, 90 are currently supporting the show on Patreon. That's about 6% of our listenership. The numbers used to be a little higher than that, but some folks have had to cut back on their giving lately, which I totally understand. When I was unemployed, you guys came through in a big way to help me out, and some of you were incredibly generous. So for all of you who've given this year, I just have this to say. Thank you so, so much. You helped me through a tight spot, and I'm grateful for that. Now, for the other 94% of my listeners who haven't made a pledge, I want to ask you to consider this question. Do you enjoy the stories you hear on this show? Do you want me to be able to keep bringing them to you? Remember, on The Raven and the Writing Desk, you're getting high-quality audio fiction that's available here for the first time anywhere. You get these stories before Audible gets them. This podcast has been going strong for about a year and a half now, bringing you more than 25 hours of fresh new fiction. What sort of value do you place on that entertainment? Because if the answer is anything more than zero, then maybe it's time to consider making a pledge. As an added incentive, I'm making three special offers. First, if you've given at least $150 in Patreon donations over the last year, I'm going to send you an autographed copy of Divine Intervention. Consider this a special Christmas thank you gift to my most committed patrons. Second, if you're currently a donor and you haven't hit 150 in pledges for the year, but you increase your pledge so that you'll reach 150 by December 1st, then you will also receive a signed copy of Divine Intervention. Finally, if you make a new pledge of any amount and you keep it through the end of the year, I'll automatically enter you in a random drawing for a signed copy of Divine Intervention. The rules for this drawing will be at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Follow the link in the show notes and make a pledge today. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641 715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is Fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and my Twitter handle is Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. If you like what I'm doing on the show, leave a review on iTunes. It really helps new listeners to find us. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2013 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. 
The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.